Casey. My point is, here we are. We're going along in life and everything's fine. As far as we know, there are only two Gordons out there when all of a sudden, a third one comes along. The guy talking to Dana at the thing. The last guy week. talking to Dana. The guy out there talking to Dana. Gordon. We've got sound. Oh, thank God. That was all I had to say. Thank merciful God. In three, two, one. Good evening from New York City. I'm Casey McCall alongside Dan Rydell. Those stories plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Semino. I'm Adam Amin. And you're listening to Those Stories Plus. And this is episode three, The Hungry and the Hunted. We've been talking about this episode for a couple of weeks. We're back. We are back. Great. You're back from <laughs> your gallivanting around Europe with uh, with your lovely wife. I am back, still slightly jet lagged, going to bed very early and waking up super early as well. But uh, feeling okay. Very glad to be home, but also so sad that it went so quickly. You can follow us for this podcast at Those Stories Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Amin. You can follow Steve at SJCIM. So we've got everything available on thosestoriespod.weebly.com. We'll have the updates every week, soon to be available on iTunes. You'll be able to subscribe very, very shortly. We'll tweet about it exactly uh, when that actually comes up. So we're really excited about that. And uh, as I mentioned last week in our little mini update, uh, stay tuned in the, ne- in the next coming weeks because we're going to start bringing guests on. Uh, when Nicole Auerbach gets back from Rio covering swimming, where she's doing a dynamite job for USA Today, she'll join us. We'll have Tess Quinlan from NBC Sports, Daniel Bramlett from ESPN and the SEC Network. We'll have uh, some re- uh, television reporters as well from various networks to uh, to talk about some upcoming episodes. So very, very, very excited about all of that. Speaking of Olympics, you've been watching a lot? Have you just yeah. had Channel 5 on constantly like it I is, have? It is, it is constantly on television. Uh, the swimming is awesome. I love seeing what Simone Biles is doing. Mm-hmm. She's probably the most incredible athlete ever. Uh, there is an episode of Sports Night later on that does deal with Olympic coverage, uh, about cutting back on Olympic coverage, which I think is interesting because there are so many more hours of Olympic coverage from the actual rights holder, NBC. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there is so much to watch. There's so much to root for. Swimming, though, I think uh, is the most, right now, the most competitive and the most enthralling for the United it's States. It's so, so exciting to watch those races. It's just, you edge of your seat, pounding, like, chanting, screaming. It's a lot yeah. of fun. I was watching last night a lot of synchronized diving, which I find <laughs> you, amazing. You never would have thought it's that that would have been a thing, thing. That, uh, that, that you ended up watching. I find myself every Olympics, winter or summer, just becoming super engaged and excited <laughs> for a sport that I have never watched or never really thought about. And then when it's on, I'm just like, oh my god, I can't stop looking away. Would you put that at the top of your list of sports that you don't watch at all? Until the Olympics? Yes. I mean, it's not around that much normally for me, but uh, when it comes on then, it's just amazing what these people do. So The Hungry and the Hunted aired originally October 6th, 1998. It is again written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Tommy Shalami. Our synopsis for this one says that Isaac sends Jeremy out on his first line-producing job covering hunting. Natalie uses a company function to encourage Casey and Dana to date, but when they get there, they discover she's on a date with a guy named Gordon. And when Jeremy returns from the hunting trip, he's visibly shaken by what he's seen. Lots of good stuff. This is the, this is an episode that really showcases that that sports night make you laugh really hard, also make you really really kind of think and a little bit tug on the heartstrings. It has a perfect balance of the humor, which is great in this episode, and also again that last monologue, just like last episode, the apology, where it hits you hard in the in the emotions too. Uh, you, you said your favorite character, Jeremy Goodwin, is uh, prominently featured. We really get to dive into his story and his background and what makes this guy tick. And we see it immediately from the beginning when uh, Isaac and Casey are watching a football game on television. They're discussing the the strategy of it. 
and they ask Jeremy for his opinion. He's super awkward about it, <laughs> and then he delivers this. He's going to split three wide receivers and put a tight end in the backfield with the tailback in motion. A play-action fake will freeze the strong safety, and Kittis will find his primary receiver over the middle. It's a play called Red Rocket Right Slant 42Z Out. He'll get the first down, probably a lot more. What are you insane? I feel like he was he knew what they were going to do and didn't want to get himself to like, yeah. guys, how dumb are you? Obviously, it's going to be this. <laughs> when they run Red Rocket Right Slant 42Z Out, and it's exactly what he thought, that just proves, hey, Jeremy is a savant when it comes to sports and what's going to be happening. I was watching the uh, Brett Favre quarterback camp with John Gruden and... The, the, they go through all these plays. The, this is the type of stuff. Like these, what this is what plays sound like. Like red rocket right, forty two slant z out, right. three hundred jet go. Like all this <laughs> stuff, and it all means something. I'm I'm still fascinated by terminology when it comes to football because all of this stuff apparently means something. I don't think Florida State and Purdue have ever played each other in college football, <laughs> and somehow they've got Florida State and Purdue playing each other in college football. So I will say that that is a somewhat inaccurate. Uh, delivery right there. I feel like this is something we mentioned a couple episodes ago, or maybe in the first episode, that we were going to try and pay attention to would this team be playing this team? Would this sport be happening at this point? So it's definitely something that is interesting to know. Like, oh, this would never happen, or this has never happened. And it's uh, just very impressive to see Jeremy know exactly what's going on, even though you get Isaac saying, you take a lot of the fun out of this because <laughs> he's just so precise and he knows what's going on. So it is a great cold open. I think it's the Best cold open thus far, only three episodes in, and I can't think of another one that sticks out so much as this particular scene. You get right into, I mean, that's the point of the cold open. You get, you're getting right into the, basically the storyline. Even though you can, even if you separated that, and there is a callback to it later, but even if you separated that, you're kind of getting into the meat of what I think Aaron Sorkin's job is still in episode three. You're still introducing people, and obviously, as we said, we get to know a lot about Jeremy, but you're still introducing a lot of things. A lot of dialogue, a lot of characters, and he's still working on that, and we get that taste from Jeremy right now. Oh, yeah. On the subject of uh, quarterbacks and just knowing play calls, I never played football beyond, you know, little kid. I played sure. maybe one or two years, and it is, I know, very complex, and there's a lot of things happening at once, but that play call, if I was in the huddle and they said, Red Rocket writes, Land 42Z out, just being able to run in your mind, this is exactly what I have to do, is very complicated. And I pulled out here, I just went to the bookcase to get... Uh, the Chuck Klosterman book called Downtown Owl, which is a novel, and it's not awesome, but there is a little section where a character is describing what it was like to play high school quarterback, and I just wanted, I thought it was appropriate to no, read. No, please, please. He says, They never should have turned me into a quarterback. I couldn't do the things quarterbacks needed to do. All my life, I've never done anything that was more difficult than trying to complete a downfield pass. People always claim that athletes are morons, and I suppose some of them are, but playing quarterback was complex. It was harder than any class I ever took or any job I ever quit. You have to memorize so much shit. You have to make so many decisions, etc., etc. And he goes on to describe the diagrams and this and that. And it's true, but in Jeremy's mind, click, no problem. Yeah. This is obviously what they're going to call <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just perfect. So that just goes to show some more. He really is... Savant-like. Yes. Yeah, if I you looked at all right. these people who've been in sports all their lives and have seen all this... He's still, like, the nerdiest guy in the back corner, but he knows precisely what's going to happen. So I think that's just perfect to, to think about. No, that. that's a great reference, actually. The writing in this, is again, is really, really good. And, and this is the reason why we, we still talk about this show, because I would say of that monologue. There's a, it, My favorite part about reliving these episodes and rewatching them is is the funny stuff, because you remember a lot of little little jabs and you, you remember a lot of one-liners, but those monologues have stuck with me ever since the first time I ever watched this show. And it's... 
great to relive those too and kind of dive into them and dissect them. But that's what I really love so far Definitely. about uh, about rewatching these. And even having seen them numerous times, you still kind of you get sucked in and you're kind of like, oh my god, you know, you still watch it as if it's the first time, no matter how many times you've seen it, which is great. So we come back from that commercial break and we're right in the middle of a, a rundown meeting. It's early in the day, it seems like. They don't have a lot of show to discuss. And Dan is going on about the America's Cup, which is pretty relevant to us. They, they just had qualifiers yes. in Chicago like two months That's ago. That's true. Which uh, I, And I did watch, be, strictly for ten minutes, <laughs> I watched America's Cup racing because of this, of this episode. See? It was on, I think, two weeks ago, like the actual America's Cup. And the only reason I watched is strictly because of this episode of Sports Night. <laughs> It's, uh, here's where I get to English teacher nerd out for a second, too. I constantly, when we start Walt Whitman, refer to him as Slim Whitman, which is what <laughs> happens in this episode, and the kids have no idea, but I act like we're old pals. I'd be like, yeah, Walt, Mr., you know, Slim Whitman. Me, me and Slim? And they just stare. They, they don't care at all. But the poem that they are actually misquoting is not by any of the poets that they mention. It's actually by John Macefield. It's called Sea Fever. And they kind of jumble a few lines, but still, I think, a fairly obscure poem. And I give Dan credit for even knowing as much of it as he did. Whether or not he had it accurate doesn't seem to matter. Sploom, spume, and what was it flung, again? Flung, spume, and blown slowly. Flung, spume, and blown <laughs> But the actual, he says, I must go down to this. This is the real poem. This is the I must go poem. down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. Wow. So I give Dan credit for even knowing, <laughs> even misquoting that poem. The flung spume and the blown spray. Oh, that's incredible. And yeah. Dana, Dana has that great misquote of it, even of the misquote that Dan has a great little response to yeah. too. Can I say something? Sure. There's a chance it might be Dylan Thomas. You have to imagine, Danny, how much I don't give a damn about blown spume. It's flung spume and blown spray, but actually I like your way better. Getting the call, the repetition of this, and this is uh, part of the Sorkinism feature. I don't want to call this a Sorkinism necessarily, but it's certainly a writing style. It's a Sorkin we, style. It's, yes. a, it's very much a writing style that we're going to get used to. Uh, and especially as these episodes start to get further and further along, three, four, five, six, you're going to hear a lot more of this. So... You know, getting the call. Jeremy's getting the call? Yeah, Jeremy's getting the call. And you're, you're going to feel and hear this a lot more often, and the rapid fire is about to pick up. I think it's gotten deep enough to where you understand the rhythm and the pacing, and now you're really going to get into something. I would imagine as a writer, and you know this better than I do, because I write very short form. For television, I write very, very short form, 10 to 15 seconds at a time, 30 seconds at a time. I'm not a long form anchor or anything like that. You, you've written long form before, so I would imagine you, when you find something you're comfortable with, you're going to kind of pound it, maybe not as often as you can, but you're gonna find, if you find something you really like, a device, you're going to stick with it for a while. Definitely. I think if you read any writer, if you read enough of them, you certainly pick up on their tone. And that's the thing, like, the most famous example probably is like a Hemingway, where he has that very short, very, very punchy dialogue, very, very punchy just everything. Exposition is very short sentences, very short words, and there's the famous bad Hemingway contest every year because it is so, oh yeah, that's Hemingway. That's style. And I think any writer who is particularly good or who is unique enough to be able to say like, oh, you're, you're trying to sound like Hemingway, you're trying to sound like Sorkin, it's a credit to them because they have that distinct style. Yeah. And this is early in his television writing career and he starts to kind of have that snowball rolling, you can tell already, we're only a few episodes in. And he's using it. He's laying on it because it works. And it gives you that sense that, hey, these are the people that know each other well enough and have this cadence with each other. And it just kind of feels natural, even though in a regular setting, it's probably not very natural. But in this world, it fits. And it's exactly how you would picture these people talking to one another. 
I like that we we're kind of watching rewatching this in in the sense of we don't know exactly what's about to happen and certain details we don't remember because it's been a while since mm-hmm. we watched it. But I think we nailed Jeremy, you especially within the first couple of episodes. You're, and we were both kind of saying, I think he's got a print background. Yeah. He's got the and, and sure enough, and sure enough, <laughs> he's got a print USA Today. Like he's he's got the print background, the the, the journalism background that we kind of thought he did. And now it's being applied to sports, and you see his nervousness yes. uh, when Natalie brings up the fact that Isaac and Jeremy's old boss are, old, are, are good friends, are great friends from from back in the day, and you can sense his nervousness. And we're that's a great teaser for what we're going to yes. learn for Jeremy going Absolutely. forward. Absolutely. So we find out he's getting the call at the end of this meeting. He doesn't know what it means. They're going to talk after lunch um, and figure all that out. There's also I love it's better than a poke in the eye, and he goes. How much better after a little <laughs> delay? I think that's a great line. It really made me laugh pretty hard. I have it. I have it bolded in my notes because it's you have that pitter patter back and forth. Yes. How how good? It's better than a poke in the eye. How much, much better? better. <laughs> just a little delay. I just love that. that part. That's a very Josh Molina yes. move right there. It's a very very. It's an it's an excellent. It's just a good laugh line. Just a little tiny thing. So the meeting ends and we find out, or as the meeting is ending, we find out about this black tie event afterwards that Luther Sachs is having. They have to go. So they're going to go probably about 1 a.m. The show closes at midnight. You got to figure, you got to close everything down, get in the cars, head across town, and they're going to go what over kind, there. What kind of events are these people Honestly, going to? There's what a kind lot? of world do these people live in? I was thinking about that. Um, I don't want to be like one of those people that keeps being like, when I was in Europe, but I was when we were in Spain, in Barcelona... It's everything's very late. They don't eat dinner until like eleven o'clock. Yeah, that's right. They don't go out until like two o'clock to six o'clock in the morning. So that took a little adjustment. And a lot of times on this show, they're going out to dinner afterwards, or they have an event afterwards. I'm like, these have I just been like an old fogey my whole life? <laughs> Everyone's going out at like one o'clock in the morning. Here. Now, now listen, like I, I've I'm the king of the eleven o'clock dinner. Uh, I mean, you know, when we do games, you do games at seven o'clock, eight yeah. o'clock Eastern time. When you're done, you're pretty hungry there's a lot there it's a physically it. and sometimes mentally draining broadcast and you want it you're hungry you want to eat you want to grab a drink so uh, trust me i'm the king of the 11 o'clock dinner <laughs> but i mean oh one o'clock we're gonna go to a black, a black tie, tie affair, event right we're gonna show up for a black tie <laughs> event at one o'clock in the morning i want to see i want to go to that party right. i want to see what type of people are hanging out at 1 30 a.m wearing tuxes and whatnot i can't the limited things we know about Luther Sachs, I don't see him being a party animal. But apparently, he's, <laughs> apparently he's going he's, late. He wants he wants his studs to show up at one o'clock in the morning to impress his uh, his corporate buddies, I guess. Oh yeah. So as they're wrapping up this discussion about the party, a couple more good little laughs in there where the invitation says October the eighth, nineteen hundred and ninety-eight A.D. A.D. They're worried I might accidentally show up two thousand years before the birth of Christ. <laughs> Uh, and then Dan's line about Dana's shoes, too. What shoes are you wearing? What shoes are you wearing? Whatever shoes are on my feet. She's talking what to Dana. Hell? Manola Blahniks. Black silk slingbacks? Yeah. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Coco Chanel. <laughs> it's very, very funny and, and just shows a little bit more about Dan just being a nice, funny guy, I guess. I thought the laugh track was a little better. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit better placed. Uh, in, in a lot of these spots, like we, we talked about the mistiming of the laugh mm-hmm. track in the first episode. It, at, at the very least, the, the timing of it is getting a little bit better. And, and obviously, it's still going to be pretty prominent for the next you know several episodes until we get about what midway through the season. And it'll start to fade and eventually go away. But uh, at the very least, I was less annoyed by the laugh track because the point of the laugh track is is you, you laugh and the audience laughs. So you feel like there's a communal watch, you know, and there is 
an audience or they're you know they're they're not breaking the fourth wall but if you're gonna have a laugh track it better be well timed i thought it was a little bit better in this episode it's it's so far all funny too and yeah, we're only no, a few a minutes in, episode, so it yeah. is like it gets you in the mood and gets you feeling pretty loose which yes. is nice and then that will spoiler alert kind of gets turned on its head at the end which is good it actually works in its favor in this episode so the meeting ends and we have uh, dana and isaac heading back to isaac's office and jeremy joins them he's still very nervous about getting the call we find out what that means exactly. He's going to produce a segment for the outdoor program called CSC Outdoorsman. They're going hunting for ducks and deer. Immediately, he's very squirmy. You can just tell this is not yes. an outdoorsy guy. Something's not really fond of or He's not very fond of it for whatever reason, but he's not going to say no. You can just tell. So he's like, oh, okay. And what I like is because we're start, we think we're starting to learn Jeremy's traits, and obviously he's a very nervous guy, as you said, we're probably thinking he's just not... Oh, he just doesn't like hunting because he's kind of, right. you know, he's, he's nerdy, he's not an outdoors guy. And the again, to set up, and obviously we'll discuss the end of it, but it sets up a bit of a surprise. It's not a shock at the end, but it's a really good surprise. It's, it, it does take it in a different direction when we find out why he actually was against taking this assignment, yes. even though he's obviously going to take it. So Natalie shows up and gives him all of the information he needs. It's a couple of magazines to get some background. It's all of his agendas and who he's going to be with. It's starting to show that she's into him as she gives him a little brown paper bag, some snacks. You don't make a snack bag. I wrote this down. You do not make a snack bag for somebody unless you like them. <laughs> and that is so very obvious and adorable, obviously, yes. too. She's starting to show those feelings that she was talking about with Dan and, and Casey in the previous episode. I've got a note here that says, and again, I really get the English teacher nerd out in this episode. Sure. I just wrote Chekhov's Twinkie. We'll come back to that <laughs> later. Because she says it's just stuff from the machine. Twinkies. Like she mentioned specifically. And that will, if you know what Chekhov's gun yes. is, which I'm assuming most people do, it's going to come back. So don't don't put the Twinkie on stage in the first act if it's not going to go off or be eaten or I guess yes. so in this yeah, case it, it, it is a you know, would you call that a literary device I would yeah okay. well to, to a certain point Anton Chekhov we'll talk about this more it's a, it's a device yeah. for sure yes he says don't put a gun on stage in the first act if it's not going to go off by the third so everything yes. should have a purpose she mentions Twinkies on purpose it'll come back um, and then we go to a scene ending uh, quote from Jeremy I still don't know what that means because he's getting the call he's getting the call what I, I wrote down as a question to you <clears throat> I don't, and this can mean different things for different people. What was the call for you? Like, when when did you get the call? When did I get the call? I'm interpreting this to be like the big moment or, or sure, something. No, kind I, of like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's that's how I interpret it. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's a weird. People ask a lot. Kids ask a lot at, at work. When did you decide to be a teacher? You know, like what made you want to be a teacher? And I've never had a specific moment until I actually thought about it when a kid asked me last year. And there was a time, I can't remember specifically what the assignment was, but it was in high school where you essentially had to play teacher for a period. Yeah. And I just felt comfortable. And it was kind of like, you know everything about this particular subject, and then you had to teach everybody about it. It was it's a device I used in I remember the, the I remember time. the assignment. Yes, yeah. and it was just one of those things where it just felt nice or it felt good to watch somebody get it, you know, that moment when you helped them get to that point. So I think that would be the call, I guess. Maybe maybe junior year in high school okay. was when I got the call I was, I was to, to stay in call. high school my whole life. That's I was about, I was like, yeah, there you <laughs> that go. Was that it. was the lone reason. I wanted to stay close to the oh, kids. Yeah. What, was, what was your call? I, I remember it was July of 2011. I, uh, I had been working a lot of freelance stuff. I was working in minor league baseball at the time. I had just uh, signed with an agent a few months prior. And he had been kind of pitching me to networks and things like that, and uh, there was a lot of build up to it. And say, hey, I think uh, I think we might have they might have some work for you. It might be like ten events, and then he'd call back a week later and say, well, it might be twenty events. Well, you know, this this might be actually moving towards something. And I I 
might have the date wrong, but I believe it was July 2nd, 2011. And I was in New Jersey. I was in a minor league baseball booth. We had had a kids' day game. Love the kids' day games that start at 11 a.m. And it's just kids from camps. So they're just raging <laughs> at 11 o'clock in the morning for a baseball game. So we got done about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I got a phone call from my agent. He said, hey, they uh, ESPN just hired you full time. Uh, so that you know, is- that's... That's, that is literally getting that is the literally call. getting the call. It that happened. Is that, was, that was my call, and uh, so five years ago. That's amazing. That's great. So the scene changes, and we've got Natalie really pushing for Casey and Dana to ride in a car together to this black tie. They're very slowly getting ready. Kim is is apparently poking. I don't know how she's poking Casey, putting a bow tie on him, just tying the tie. But she is. Um, and we get into this funny discussion, which. Looking back now, I laughed pretty good when watching it, yeah. but I recall thinking about it being like, oh, that was so dumb. That was just such a stupid little laugh moment that didn't need to be there. It needed to be there. Where we get into soccer. Dan hates soccer. His quote is, it's a mind-numbing bore, and any reasonable person would rather be playing it than watching it. And I'm sure you could use that to describe a lot of sports Certainly. for various people, whatever your sport may be. I think some people like playing tennis rather than watching tennis. Some people probably prefer to you know play basketball rather than watch it i mean you could describe that for a lot of sports i I understand that but you and i both got very like in depth in our notes about (laughs) this particular section this like two minute section of the show because we were we were fascinated by the mls of 1998 it was a youngish league at this point it started in 1993 and it was at the time, small enough that they could name all the teams very, very quickly. Columbus Crew. Miami Fusion. New England Revolution. Tampa Bay Mutiny. D.C. United. Chicago Fire. Colorado Rapids. Dallas Burn. Kansas City Wizard. Los Angeles Galaxy. And the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. You all just made that up, didn't you? <laughs> and they did. They named, mo- I think, all of the teams. So, so th- well, here's, here's what killed me. So I went back and looked... And listened and, and compared it to, to you know, I, I looked at the 98 standings, assuming we're like uh-huh. in 1998 or 99. They forgot the San Jose Clash. They forgot a team. They How forgot. One they? T- that's, come on, <laughs> man, Sorkin, what are you doing? They forgot the San Jose Clash, which are now the San Jose Earthquakes. Cause, so they mentioned, I believe, 11 teams in this run, and there were 12 teams in the league. But that being said, still pretty good to get most of them. The Miami Fusion don't exist anymore. But Miami is trying to get an MLS team relatively soon, pending like a stadium agreement. The Kansas City Wizards are now Sporting KC. The Dallas Burn are now FC Dallas. New York, New Jersey Metro Stars are now the New York Red Bulls. It was a 12-team league at the time. It's now 20. With four more with coming. With four more coming. That's, that's pretty good growth in oh, the yeah. last... You know, what, for a league that's been around for 22 years, you go from 12 to 24, that's not bad at all. It's it's doing all right. There has been this, I think a lot of it, credit to the Olympic teams or the, the national teams for drawing a lot of attention on the big stages. But I know a lot of the the fan bases in the MLS are rabid. I know Seattle Absolutely. is Seattle huge. and Portland are Portland huge. Portland is huge. I've been to my fair share of, of fire games. A friend of mine at work has season tickets. He's yep. always asking me to go. And they're, they're a lot Col- of fun. A college buddy of mine has season tickets. I've gone a handful of times and I've enjoyed it every time I've gone. It's fun, uh, it's a, it's it's fun a, it's a to fun be sport. in that yep. environment. It's a lot it's a of fun. fun sport. And this is 1998. Who won the MLS Cup in 1998? The Chicago, Chicago Fire. In their first season Chris, in the I'm league. I'm going to guess Chris Armas might have been on that team. Oh, man. You're digging deep uh, here. I think he might have been the captain. And the, the reason I think I remember that is because when I was in fifth grade, they came... Or no, this was in junior high. They came to... Our school. I think, I think they did. Now that you're I think like, three, I I think like three members of the Chicago Fire came to our school. 
Oh, and I, I think I distinctly remember like two girls sitting next to me going, he's, he's cute. And I'm like, wow. That was like the first time I recognized. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like, I have to be better looking than I am right now. So, well, chicks dig soccer players, I feel like. There's a lot of very handsome soccer players. Very, very in shape, yes, handsome people. That's a fact. So after our, our very funny uh, run through of the... That was the most time I've spent talking about MLS, by the way, maybe my entire life. Do you feel like Dan feels? Do you hate soccer? Are you? No, 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 no. I don't hate soccer. I'm, I'm not, I, and I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm indifferent to it either, because I loved watching Euros. I was very excited about Concacaf when uh, the United States was playing. You know, teams like Argentina. I wouldn't say I'm indifferent to it, but I, I'm not the most passionate soccer fan either. We've got uh, another funny. Like the whole first half of this episode is just very, very classic. Funny. There's a lot of classic comedy stuff. When Dana walks by in her cocktail dress, and there's been all this buildup yep. with, with Natalie talking about it, solid pratfall. Casey goes down. Really solid <laughs> pratfall from Casey McCall here. It is. It's a full on throw your body in the air. Yeah. Like that's you have to take classes was, to learn how to do that. I mean, well. it was it was a back pedal and kind of whoa with limb, limbs akimbo. I've always wanted to say akimbo at some point. Uh, like just <laughs> flailing limbs, you need you need those for a good pratfall, and I think uh, I think Casey accomplished it right there. Oh yes, and also at the end of this scene is one of probably my top ten sports night lines, maybe top five sports night lines when Dan and Casey are discussing this whole Dana and Casey situation. Dan says, "I got to tell you, at this point, the length of this conversation is way out of proportion to my interest in it." Well, all right, then let's just leave it at that. Fine. Which is a Which line is that will pop up so again. Good. So I think we can tag that as a Sorkinism. That I think is we definitely can use a that Sorkinism. As a Sorkinism. That will that'll pop up again and again in later shows as well. And before we get to the commercial break, we've got a phone call. Some kind of problem with Jeremy. Something has happened. So Isaac rushes to the phone. So we already have had half an episode of laughs, and we get, oh no, problem. So it really kind of catches you. Into a very serious moment. We have a commercial break. We come back. I have a note. It just says, Twin Towers, with an exclamation point. I wanted to mention this in like the very first episode. A lot of the establishing shots, because this was a pre-9-11 show, and it's taking place in New York, and I think their studio is supposed to be in Rockefeller Center. Yes. Um, there's a lot of New York skyline with the Twin Towers, and it's so kind of jarring at first. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens a lot, like even on, on Friends or on, on Seinfeld from time to time, whenever there's a panoramic shot in the Twin Towers, you're like, oh boy. And it just kind of, for some reason, I typed it this particular time. I was, uh, we were talking about this off the air. I was sick recently and I was uh, laid up in bed for a while. So I happened to uh, uh, fall on The Simpsons. I watched, a, I think it was a season nine or a season eight premiere and it's when Homer has the uh, the parking tickets and the boot on his car in New York, the city of and New York versus Homer Simpson, and it's and it's stuck, and the car is basically stuck between the, the twin towers. And I, I was thinking about that as well yep. the other day, just going, "Wow, that is still a little surreal." Surreal, and I thought, uh, if I if I'm not mistaken, they wouldn't show that episode for a few years after September 11th, understandably so. They wouldn't show that episode in syndication because of the reference of the twin towers mm-hmm. and that, and how prominently they play. You know, lines like, oh, they put all the jerks over in Tower 1 and stuff right. like that. Like, I can understand why that might be a little jarring. And, and now, obviously, you know, 15 years later, it's it's a little easier to digest. But, yes. man, that was a little strange. It would be interesting. We don't have to go off on this tangent right now. But ha- did you see somebody did a spec script for Seinfeld? Yes, the 9/11 Seinfeld I did, yeah, script. Yeah. It would be interesting to see our sports night characters handle 9-11 yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I, there was part of me that wishes that the show would have gone on a little bit further. I like that in Studio 60... Uh, even though it starts in, I think the show started in 2006, 2006, they went back to talk about, because it played such a prominent role, yes. they went back and showed what, how they approached a show like that after 9-11. 
Uh, we've got the sound problems, and I, I believe you you noted earlier that this is also kind of a this sorganism. is kind of a sorganism, like fixing fixing the sound system and trying to uh, for whatever reason. I feel like there's there's always some kind of technical issue, and you gotta like you gotta play that off in, in an, any type of Aaron Sorkin show. Yes, I, I had a note that I said I dig watching the guys do what they do, just seeing. The control room guys do their thing. They have minor parts. They usually have a couple of lines per episode, but they still feel like home. Like they still feel like family. They're they're experts. They're professionals. They're still pretty funny when they have to be. It's it's nice to see them being in there. And I just remember what I what I was thinking about that for fixing the sound system. The Sorkinism is, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, I'm gonna go play basketball. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Fixing the sound system. So like that that's yes. that line that kind of cadence is another Sorkinism. Uh, I, I would say it's a, a writing style or maybe potentially a Sorkinism. Definitely. So we've got now Casey, who was totally adverse to this whole Dana situation, now driving Dan nuts because he is obsessed with Dana since last night. Um, apparently, he's jealous because Dana was spending some time with another guy at the party. And this is someone apparently named Gordon. Casey asks Dan, how many people can you think of named Gordon? He says, two, Gordon Lightfoot and Gordon Liddy. How many people can you think of named Gordon? So, uh, Gordy Howe. Because okay. I mean that is Gordon. It's Gordon Howe. Uh, I wrote down Gordon Bombay. Gordon Bombay. Not, hey, why not? not? It's a fictional character, but why still. Uh, and you and I, I know you would appreciate this. Sting. I was about to say Sting that. Sting is so excited. <laughs> Just because of the Dana Carvey special where his name's Gordon. Guys, yeah. Would you mind calling me Sting? <laughs> yeah. Whatever, Gordy. <laughs> go get me a beer. You and I are in love with that uh, oh, stand-up special. I'm so happy you mentioned Dana, that. That Data Carvey did it. In, I think it was uh, People's Choice. Yes, right. It's so in 1992 old. or it's, it's just after OJ. Oh no, no so yeah, it's so like it was 95. 90, it was 95. Yeah, 94, yeah, yeah. 95. But yeah, definitely. And beyond, I had Sting in addition to those, and then Gordon Beckham are like the only other. Oh man, how did I forget as, Gordon as Beckham? Yeah, the only other uh, Gordons I could think of too. So it has to be if there's only two Gordons out there, there should only be two Gordons, and yet there is this one too. Um, fortunately, Dana cannot hear any of this conversation because the sound is messed up. Yes. So it's, it's a nice device there. Where, well, how can I make them have this conversation while sitting at the desk? And it's, oh, well, I'll make the sound be broken. Is that a checkoff thing? That could kind be. Of? That's just, that's okay. just, yeah. I would Not say as obvious as right. the Twinkies. It's but purposeful. Yeah. It's, it's okay, done yeah. for a reason, which is, which is nice there. Here's an anachronism for you. They mentioned Iditarod coverage. But it's October. The Iditarod takes place in March. Yes. So that couldn't happen. My first catch. I'm very happy to kind of pick that and find out. <laughs> what? What's going on? So that's a timeline uh, mistake right there. Um, but the scene ends and we go to after the show, 12.06 a.m. I know this because uh, Elliot gives the camera wrap. The camera wrap, yep. There's that. And there's lots of activity going on, including for some reason a man in a jumpsuit changing a light bulb. He's just a background extra. I feel like that could have waited till the morning. <laughs> but, but there is... Somebody got yelled at at, that, at 12.05 to go yes. change a light bulb, I think. And it's not like a, an important light bulb. It's like a 60 water. So that's an interesting <laughs> thing. Um, we find out that definitely Gordon was Dana's date because she said, Dan, this is my date, Gordon. And we have got uh, Casey just wigging out about all that. Another note, we mentioned a couple episodes ago about the clothing. Yep. Yes. I wrote that down as well. Dan's Dan, rocking jeans. Dan is wearing jeans and Casey's wearing the full suit. So Which again, would not, uh, I, it does not happen anymore. It really does not. Because if you're an anchor of a late night sports show, you're doing all these stand-ups and they've got the camera that's going around to the behind, you know, behind the desk and this and that. So uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. I feel I feel for my uh, anchor brethren. Because I, <laughs> I, trust me, I sneak them once in a while. Like I, I sneak jeans on TV, Yeah. especially during spring season. Like, if I'm doing baseball or softball, on TV specifically, I won't wear, like, the full suit very often. 
Uh, I'll throw in some jeans once in a while, throw on a pair of shorts uh, during football season if it's uh, really cold and uh, we're not going to be, you know, we're going to be bundled up. I'll just wear jeans and like boots on t- on TV. Nobody will see them. Sure. I'll do, and I'll just throw a big coat. Uh, nobody, nobody is the wiser. Yeah. So. I always, I'm always a little, I kind of chuckle when during, like you see Troy Aikman calling the game and he's got like four and Joe overcoats Buck, yeah, him, on. Him and Joe Buck <laughs> have like the NFL on Fox parkas right. when they do a Green Bay Huge game in December. Coats. Yeah. Huge hats. Like I, I appreciate the cold, but yeah, you got to get comfortable I, in those hot summer days. I think we've been specifically told we're not allowed to wear hats. Like, ah. like for the most part, we're not allowed to wear like a puffy hat with like ear flaps or anything like that. I, I am a little disappointed about that. <laughs> I feel like I'd be the first guy to walk, like rock a beanie, on, uh, looking like uh, looking like cousin Eddie with the, <laughs> the hunting hat flopping around, wearing your uh, your holding coffee hunting yeah. hat. So it's it's after midnight. And Jeremy is back. He's he's bummed out. He seems very upset. I had another question here. Why on earth would he go back to the office after midnight, after having this bad this bad weekend, instead of going home and coming back? They've already seen a rough cut. We were told earlier that he'd come back and edit on Friday. There's a lot of timeline things that confuse me. I think it's just obviously for narrative convenience. Yeah. But if you're coming home from the... the adventure that he had i don't think you're going i gotta go to the office it's one o'clock i don't know and maybe and maybe that's jeremy i'm and again this is clearly part of the narrative yes but but to justify it to help justify it maybe that's jeremy that's true and he might be worried because this is his first producing segment where his name's gonna be on screen and maybe he wants to get a head start on it or something like that so i could see him doing that i can see him being that apparently it didn't go very well so maybe he (laughs) wants to really put that extra work into it so we find out that he got sick and he passed out uh he was sweating he was hyperventilating he went to the hospitals hospital and um basically he just did not enjoy this hunting here's another sorkinism he gives phenomenal detail about the kind of gun they were using all the details about the length of the barrel and and the scope and the name and all this bob and eddie were using the ir-50 recon by bushcomber it's got a 16 inch microgroove barrel with 30 30 mags side scope mount wire cutter sheath quick release bolt mag catches and a three pound trigger so i figured we must be going after a pretty dangerous duck that's his organism where you're very, very specific. And the long and short of it is Jeremy feels very bad because he helped lure a deer into being shot and killed, and he did not think it was sport. He did not think it was it was anything worthy of this thing, this animal dying. And what was it that he was able to draw the deer out with? It was the Twinkie was the that Twinkie. you referred to earlier. He feels upset. He wasn't happy about it. He says, Bob Shoemaker was telling me about the nobility and tradition of hunting and how it related to the Native American Indians. And I nodded and I said that was interesting while I was thinking about what a load of crap it was. Hunting was part of Indian culture. It was food and it was clothes and it was shelter. They sang and danced and offered prayers to the gods for a successful hunt so that they could survive just one more unimaginably brutal winter. The things they had to kill held the highest place of respect for them and to kill for fun was a sin. And they knew the gods wouldn't be so generous next time. What we did wasn't food and it wasn't shelter and it sure wasn't sports. It was just mean. He gives that nice monologue about to the Native Americans it was... It was everything. They had to pray that they would have a good hunt, and they respected those animals so much, but this wasn't what they were doing. It just was mean. Um, And he's very upset with having been a part of this. This scene, the Native American line specifically, about how they treated animals that were there to, to provide them shelter and food, that really did change my view on hunting. Because I didn't really have an opinion on it one way or another, and this specifically changed my view on hunting, and it made me less of a fan of... Of, of hunting for sport. Yes. 
I think there's this is another just like last episode with the, with the marijuana legalization debate. It's one where I feel like there's a lot of black and white people to say either no way it's cruel or people who are really into it. I think there's a gray area. I feel like hunters that hunt and and use as much of the animals as they can they they eat or they you know not just to put the head on. Yeah, your exactly, exactly. That's that's okay, I, I suppose. But Jeremy thinks this is. There's none of that. He doesn't I, even, yeah, yeah, I would who, lean. What, what do I, they do with these? These I don't know. I would, and shows? I would lean towards that as well. Like it's it's not sport. It's certainly not sports. It was just me. Right. And and I certainly lean towards that. Or and this certainly helped me or pushed me in that direction of thinking about this subject oh, yeah. this way. We had a, a a mutual classmate that we did a, a project with freshman year. I don't want to name names, but we were. <laughs> but uh, his family. I remember every year he would take a couple days off at the start of hunting season. They were way into it, but they had like three chest freezers full of meat. They, yeah, they used it. They used it, and yeah. it was. And you'd bring in like venison jerky. It was delicious. Like, it was hey, right, yeah, it was great. good. And so, like, yeah, you're using it for something, and and I think I think the respect. It was just like respect. You're, yes. you're respecting these animals. That Native American line Definitely. really really stuck with me. So Jeremy gets yelled at by Isaac. Basically, why didn't you say something? You didn't want to do this. Why didn't you say something? And Jeremy says, you know, he didn't want to rock the boat. He was getting the call. He was a little afraid. And here's where we get some more of that background. Uh, we find out, as we had mentioned, he worked uh, not only at USA Today, but at the Free Press and the Sacramento Bee. So he's kind of bounced around a sure. little bit right there. His old boss said, and I quote, Jeremy Goodwin was a bright guy with a world-class understanding of popular sports, but that he didn't quite fit in and there was little chance that he'd advance in their organization. To respect, Mr. Jaffe, but I have $80,000 in college loans to pay back. My instincts told me to shut the hell up and do what I was told. Your instincts were wrong. Not fitting in is how qualified people lose jobs. And another great Isaac line here, which is... Yeah, but a lot of the time, it's how they end up working here. So again, Isaac being extremely fatherlike, very, very paternal, right? He's everyone's kind of dream boss. He's got your back no matter what. I wrote, I wrote down, how do you not <laughs> fall in love with Isaac here? How do you not fall in love with this guy? Wouldn't you want to work for somebody like Definitely. this? How amazing of a boss does Isaac seem like right now? He's He's got the one big quote that I will always remember and I use constantly. I use this all it's, the time. It's a very great, it's an excellent, excellent, and another Sorkinism, but it's an excellent line about really not being comfortable right and he says if you're dumb surround yourself with smart people and if you're smart surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you so i i searched for it i googled just the line itself so west wing season two episode four when ainsley hayes i believe gets hired she's a republican she's a republican right? and the president likes to surround himself with smart, smart people, people who, who disagree, disagree with him so again that's that's going back the the call back to the sorkinism which again you'll hear a lot in, uh, in Aaron Sorkin shows, but that's a great... You want to talk about culture-defining writing? This is why I feel like he's the best writer of... You know, best television movie writer of this generation because of lines like that. That is incredibly profound. And it's really, really good advice, too. It's like, great advice. Absolutely it is. I love that. I love that line, and it kind of wraps up right there. Episode comes to an end with Jeremy calling his parents to tell him about... he. I just want to tell you something that happened at work today. I got the call. I got so the call. it's another, that phrase keeps popping up. Um, and I had another note. It's like 1230 in the morning. Where did Jeremy's parents live? Yeah. He's, he's worked in Virginia. He's worked in California too. So maybe they're out there. We I mean, don't if they're in Ca- know. Yeah, I guess if they're in California, it's still early enough. To we we can assume they don't live in New York, right? As he's later on going to be writing letters to his sister instead sure. of just going to see her. There's a lot of talk about the phone calls. But 
Yeah, I'm like, I feel like if I called, <laughs> you know, 1230, like, oh, I just want to, what's going on? You know, it'd be yeah. like a kind of a who's, who's calling at this hour right Unless now? his oh, parents were at a, uh, his parents may have been at a black tie affair. <laughs> <laughs> they were at Luther Sachs. We're just getting ready to leave. What's going on? You just caught us as we were walking out the door. Uh, I thought the soundtrack choice, uh, The Pretenders, Him to Her, was, mm. uh, was a really, really solid choice. I know in, like, syndication, like, a different song plays, and I know, like, if you watch it on streaming, it might be a different song. But the, originally it was The Pretenders, and I really, really enjoyed uh, the song choice. Just a very soft kind of out to finish off what I thought was a really, really good episode. It is a strong episode. And I feel like I, we've been talking about it a lot, but I felt like it went so quickly because it's so good. And there's really a lot of important pieces. Nothing is fluff. Nothing is there just to be there. Even like the funnier lines kind of, you get that character development with, with Dan and his yacht racing. He's kind of like, whoa, you know. Fancy this is this is meat. This is yeah. meat. A lot this of meat is, on the bone here. It's a good early series episode to give us a lot of information. It makes you laugh a whole lot, and then it gives you a lot to think about at the end. It's a really, really well written episode, and I'm I'm happy that we finally finally three episodes <laughs> we got to talk about it. Excellent first three episodes. Excellent third episode. We got a ton out of it. Uh, we're looking forward to episode four, where again there's another uh, person or persons that we get to to delve into, and we'll get a lot out of the uh, Casey and Dana relationship in mm-hmm. episode four. Next week, we will discuss that on Those Stories Plus. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at Those Stories Pod. You can follow me at Adam Amin. You can follow Steve at SJCIM. And you can visit our website to leave a comment or revisit past podcasts at thosestoriespod.weebly.com. On the subject of that, thanks for all the positive comments we've gotten in so far. A lot of, a lot of nice things from people didn't really get to respond for episode two because we had those in the can as they say a little before but yeah keep it coming keep listening very excited to keep going and we will uh talk to you next week with intellectual property